Welcome to a new episode of the Virtual Coffee Break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. Today's episode focuses on tidbits. Educator Paola Vasgalupo and Dr. Pam Rugg will discuss many aspects of this important, yet sometimes overlooked component of the milking process. So let's get started. Welcome to this new episode of the Virtual Coffee Break with the MSU Extension Dairy Team. I am Paola Basicalupo Sangüesa, Dairy Extension Educator, and today I'll be talking with Dr. Pam Rug about teeth disinfectants or teeth dips. Welcome, Dr. Pam, and thanks for joining me on this episode. Thank you, Paula, for having me here. From the last episode that you joined us, your role has changed with MSU. Yeah, I think it has. I think it's a great way to reach out to our dairy producers. And I think perhaps the last time I did one of these, I might have been serving as chair of the Department of Animal Science. I think so, But, yes. <laughs> yeah. About six, seven months ago, I had the opportunity to move over to the vet school as the inaugural David J. Ellis Endowed Chair of antimicrobial resistance and large animal clinical sciences. And I just couldn't pass up that opportunity. Uh, Dr. Ellis um, was one of my teachers. He was one of these guys who was super practical and very impactful in the industry. And maybe in some sort of pandemic-induced moment of clarity, I realized it would be a great fit for me. But that's what I'm doing now. As a member of the MSU extension dairy team. We're just happy that you're still with us in, in Michigan. So. <laughs> and congratulations for your new position. Thank you. I'm having a lot of fun in it, even in the pandemic, I guess, which is rapidly waning. So yay. Finally, yes. <laughs> so uh, the use of tea disinfectants pre and post milking plays a key or critical role in reducing and controlling new intramammary infections. The 2014 NAMS reported that close to 96% of all operations that they, they included in their study use pre-dip and almost 97% of the operations use of post-dip. So now it's widely used. Now it's super interesting because I actually never remember a time that post-dipping wasn't fairly highly adopted. But when I started in my career, pre-dipping had not yet been invented. <laughs> and and pre-dipping really came into play in the mid 80s and I started in practice in 84 and I think some really fundamental papers about the efficacy of pre-dipping came out between 86 and 88 and it was adopted incredibly rapidly like it went from nobody pre-dipping everybody using like cloth towels with sanitizer to wash and dry teats to pre-dipping And I've thought about a lot why that is. And I think there's two reasons. Pre-milking teat disinfection is easier to do than other methods of pre-milking teat disinfection. So it's both easier and pre-milking teat disinfection is outrageously efficacious in reducing bacterial counts on teat skin before putting on your milking unit. So you've got a practice that came out of nowhere that made things easier and worked better. Why wouldn't everybody want to do it? I'm sure that the producer saw an important return of investment there. So the thing that's kind of interesting in being in the career now for a long time 
is you've got people coming up who don't ever remember a time, say before post dipping or before pre dipping or whatever. And I can, I've had a few conversations over the last, I don't know, let's say four or five years with, with young people starting out in their careers um, in animal science programs, dairy science programs, tech programs. And I remember I had a conversation with a young man from a dairy farm who said, you know, costs a lot of money to, to buy um, these dips. I think they'll just stop doing it. And he was talking about both pre and post. And, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about how efficacious these dips are. And, and I'll tell a little story on that in a minute. But what I said to him, because he was one of these people who really wanted, uh, he, he would have done well in Missouri, the show me state where you have to have, you know, see something in order to have evidence it works. So I just kind of looked at him and I said, if you really doubt the efficacy of your post-milking teat dip and want to stop doing it, just do that. But it's going to be a very expensive experiment. Yeah. <laughs> because, <laughs> because there's just no question that post-dipping reduces the new infection rate. I don't know if I would like, to, I would be willing to do that experiment if I own a farm. <laughs> yeah, it's not a very wise experiment to do. Too much at risk. To start the conversation, one of my first questions that I wanted to ask you is that are teat disinfectants considered a drug? That's a great question that is super confusing in the U.S. because teat dips are regulated by the FDA, but they are not regulated in the same manner that what we would consider drugs are. The FDA regulates teat dips like an over-the-counter drug. And there's not very many over-the-counter drugs anymore. And essentially, manufacturers of licensed teat dips have to submit their product to trials that demonstrate safety. So that's safety to the cow and safety to the food supply. Because remember, the Food and Drug Administration is interested in ensuring the safety of food. So teat dips are regulated by the FDA. They are licensed by the FDA, but they're licensed as safe for use in dairy cattle and safe for use in the cows. But there is no efficacy data associated with that submission package. So manufacturers are not required to prove efficacy, but they are required to prove safety. Oh, wow. So if I wanted to start a post or pre-dip company, I just need to prove that they're safe for humans and the cow. That's correct. And so you look at that market of teat dips, it's huge because, uh, you know, in contrast to say the market for antibiotics or the drugs used in dairy cattle, because the hurdle to get into that market is much lower. Yeah, I did a quick look of how many products are now uh, labeled as pre and post-dip, and it, it's huge. <laughs> yeah, it's a really fragmented market. And uh, one thing I, I, I'll just say at the very beginning, one thing that um, I think it's really important for producers not to do is to spend all your time switching amongst products, trying to get some special magic product that's going to solve all the problems. There's a bunch of efficacious teat dips out there and they're made by proven manufacturers. And that's really what you want is a teat dip with a good reputation of its company behind it. And a company who has gone the extra steps 
and um, gone through either the National Mastitis Council protocols for proving efficacy or published efficacy data because um, the really reputable manufacturers all do that because it's such a competitive market. They know having that data will help them. Since you mentioned efficacy studies, like how can producers learn about the effectiveness uh, of a teat disinfectant in specific? Okay, so teat dips are meant to reduce the number of bacteria on teat skin. And so a manufacturer will typically, there's a couple different types of trials that they'll do. One is a controlled trial while where they um, will challenge teats with bacterial suspensions and the teats either have the teat dip or not. And the other one is like a real world trial on commercial dairies where you'll have like half the animals using uh, product A and half the animals using product B and you have what's called a natural exposure and then you count up the number of new intramammary infections. Those are the two kind of NMC approved types of trials. But the point I wanna make is the efficacy trials, even very well done efficacy trials for both pre-milking and post-milking teat dips are done on cows that have clean teats, okay? So when, when you do a trial on a cow that has clean teats, a lot of time the manufacturers what they do is, so what they'll do is they'll count up the bacteria on the teats by swabbing the teats and then, um, you know, culturing it and seeing how many colonies are there. And then they'll, um, in pre-milking, you do your pre-milking prep and then swab them or in post-milking, you'd look for new, new infections, but you're doing a before and after comparison. With pre, pre-milking teat dips, normal reduction in bacterial counts on teat skin with these pre-dips is about what we call five log, okay? Five log is 10 to the fifth. So let's go back to fifth grade math. So 10 to the one is 10, 10 to the two is 100, 10 to the three is um, 1,000, 10 to the four is 10,000, and 10 to the fifth is 100,000. In the trials, that are done, it's very typical to see about 100,000 colony forming unit reduction. And that's per usually ML of swab substance. But in real life, when we've gone in, which we've done a number of trials like this and measured teat skin reductions, it's not unusual for us to see 10 to the two or 10 to the three. So then the question becomes, well, if these teat dips have been proven under experimental or field conditions to have a five log reduction, why aren't they working on my farm? And the answer is your teats are too dirty. There is no teat dip anywhere in the world that has been proven to be efficacious if teats are covered in manure when they come in. And so it's a question about efficacy. How should teats work? You've got to recognize they don't work as well on dirty teats. We can expect a massive reduction in bacterial count on teat skin if we have teat dip applied to clean teats. But if the teats are dirty, there isn't a single teat dip that's going to be as effective. And I think in those cases, maybe out of desperation, some producers start going from one teat dip to another one, trying to look for something that works. But like you said, nothing is going to work on a teat that is covering manure. And then it gets really tricky because if these udders come in and they're all dirty, you really want to clean them off. And so then people start spraying water 
on peat. And that's the last thing you want to do. You know, you never want to put water on a cow's udder unless you're going to fully dry the tip and the udder itself. If you want to maximize the efficacy of your peat dips, this is especially important for pre-milking peat dips. Before you put that teat dip on, you really should just take a cloth towel and, and if the teat is covered in manure, wipe it off as much with the cloth towel as you can before you put the pre-dip on. And to have access to these studies, uh, the producers can ask the manufacturer or their supply provider, or can they find them at the NMC website? Oh, that's a great question too, Paula. So the National Mastitis Council has for a number of years maintained a list of peat dips that have research that has been published about efficacy. So you can look there and if you're an NMC member, you can get access to that list and it'll show you a brief summary of the efficacy data. Like what were the bacteria that was tested what was the reduction? How did it compare against whatever the other comparison group was, which is usually another T-dip. But there's a lot of T-dips out there that are pretty good that aren't necessarily on that list. And in that instance, you should ask your dealer to supply you with that peer-reviewed literature. Or if they don't have peer-reviewed literature, you should ask them to provide the data that will show how the experiments were done. And virtually all of the reputable brands have that kind of data. I think that list may be available to non-members. That's a great resource. We already mentioned that there's multiple brands, manufacturers of tea disinfectants that have different active ingredients. Is there one that is that works better than the others or that depends on the needs and the environment of each farm? You know, that's also a really, really good question. So let's talk about pre-milking teat dip and post-milking teat dip first. And then can I answer that question? Yes. Like what the difference is. <laughs> so with pre-milking teat disinfection, our objective is to reduce bacteria on the teat skin that originated after the cow left her last milking and went out into her living area, her barn or pasture, wherever. And so what we're trying to reduce with a pre-milking teat dip is exposure to environmental pathogens for the most part. So the cow went out, she laid down, her teats got dirty. They're coming in. They've got, in some instances, 10 to the 8th bacteria counts on them. Sometimes we found 10 to the 9th even. They're usually a mix of gram-negative and gram-positive streps and coliforms. And so your pre-milking teat dip, you need to be efficacious against reducing environmental pathogens because you're just trying to clean the teat before you open up that teat sphincter and let those bacteria in. The objective of post-milking teat dipping is completely different. The objective is to reduce the bacteria left in the milk film on the outside of the teats after milking is completed. And so just think about this. You've, you've got a cow, you've cleaned her teats, you've taken your milking unit, which probably has milk residue droplets in it, right? From the cow that was milked before. You're putting that on the udder of this cow. And therefore you're exposing her teat skin to milk that's inside that cluster. 
that milk inside that cluster may well be contaminated with any bacteria that have been shed by the cows that have been milked before the cow we're milking now. And so the most likely types of bacteria we're gonna have exposure to during milking are contagious pathogens. Pathogens from subclinically infected cows that are shedding at that time. So post-milking teat dipping is directed at reducing the number of colonies in that milk film on the teat skin after milking before they can multiply, colonize, and invade the teat. And they can do that really rapidly post-milking if you don't teat dip, post-milking teat dip, because that milk on the teat skin is such a great nutrient source. You know, milk feeds babies well, it feeds calf well, and it really feeds bacteria well. So post-milking teat dipping is directed toward contagious pathogens. Pre-milking teat dipping is directed toward environmental pathogens. Studies on both um, indicate that effectively done post-milking and pre-milking teat dipping reduce new infection rates somewhere between 50 and 70%. And that data is really interesting because those stud original studies on post-milking teat dipping were done in the 50s. Original studies on pre-milking teat dipping were done in the 80s. And both types of studies have been replicated within the last 10 years in New Zealand and come up with almost exact same efficacy results. So if you look at the efficacy of these pre and post milking teat dips, they're, they're about equivalent. If you don't use them, you'll get a whole bunch of new infections. And in many instances with the post milking teat dip, those new infections will be turn into long-term chronic subclinical infections because they're caused by that type of bacteria. So the reason I had to give all that background is the most researched compound is iodines. And there's a whole variety of iodines out there. But in general, when you have a contagious mastitis problem and you're worried about your post-milking teat dip, you can always go back for post-milking teat dip to a 1% iodine dip from a reputable manufacturer. That said... That doesn't mean there's not a whole bunch of other teat dips out there that are equally as efficacious. So you've got a large number of different compounds. You've got chlorine dioxide, you've got other types of kind of um, pH altering compounds. And many of those teat dips, LDBSA, for example, and others are very efficacious. But the one compound that's got the most consistent and longest track record of efficacy are iodine-based teat dips, 1% post, half percent pre. So maybe when in doubt, use something that is iodine-based. That question is also another really hard question because I can tell you that, you know, I've given probably thousands, I have no idea, of talks across the years. And in almost every talk I've ever given, regardless of subject, somebody asks about what's the best teat dip. And um, there is just no answer to that. And I give kind of the same sort of answer here that I just gave, you know, you can always fall back to these iodines. But I also tell people, you know, that's a, a safe answer for me to give to an audience where I have no idea what's going on in your individual farm. If I went to an individual farm, I may walk around the farm, look at the teats, watch a little milking and make a completely different 
recommendation. In general, that applies on your individual farm. There may be um, a different answer. Let's now move on to kill time or contact time that we know is very critical for the effectiveness of the solution, right? I know that there's now at least one product that claims that they kill the bacteria in one second after the product is applied. What's your opinion on that? I would want to see that data. And um, again, come back to what I said earlier. These studies looking at contact time, the studies that are done in an experimental setting are done on visibly clean teats. And so I'm very skeptical of that kind of data in performance in real life milking parlors. You know, you've got to have enough time for the dip to have contact with the bacteria and for those little bacteria to die. And I just don't know of a milking routine that you can't implement well in a milking parlor that can afford you enough contact time because you need enough prep lag time anyways. So let me just say I'm skeptical. I am a skeptical too. Good. <laughs> just wanted to leave that in the podcast for our listeners. So we're getting to the end. And my last question is, what characteristics should producers pay attention to when they're choosing uh, deep? That I think we cover some already, but if you have any more advice for producers. Uh, so in reality... I think the efficacy of a teat dip is based much more on what happens to that teat dip on the farm than in most instances, the actual inherent ability of the dip as proven in experimental trials. So you really need to think on the farm about how you're going to store the teat dip, if you need to reconstitute that teat dip, if you need for emollients in conditioners, you need to think about how that teat dip is going to be delivered to the teat. Like, is it an automated spraying system? Is it an actual manually done teat dip cup? Um, what type of teat dip cup? Are you going to have brushes on your cup? Whatever. Because those factors have a much bigger influence with equally efficacious dips. So just a couple of watch outs. We know that if you've got a dip that needs to be reconstituted at the farm, you've got to make sure that you have the ability to reconstitute it in accordance with the manufacturer's recommendations. And that means your pH of your water, your hardness of your water, your consistency of the system, the machinery you're using to put it together, those things all need to be tested on a regular basis. We learned a lot when we, uh, we did a trial a few years back where we were evaluating teat scrubbers. And we went to 10 different farms. And as part of evaluating the teat scrubbers, we titrated the amount of chlorine dioxide. This particular teat scrubber used chlorine dioxide. And they recommended 500 parts per million. We titrated the chlorine dioxide running through the teat scrubbers on these commercial dairies. And the concentration ranged, I believe, if I remember correctly, 50 parts per million to over 800 parts per million. Incredible <laughs> variation. And, you know, so if, if, you're, if you've got a mixing system for your teat dip on your farm, for quality control, you need to have somebody titrating that and checking that, I would say, at least on a weekly basis. 
you've got to have water that's bacteria free as well. You know, anybody who's been in this business for a long time as a veterinarian has investigated herd outbreaks that are based on contaminated tea dip. I mean, they happen on a regular basis, you know, not every day, but certainly it happens enough so that all of us who do this kind of stuff have seen that. And tea dips most commonly get contaminated because of something on the farm. They don't come from the manufacturer contaminated most of the time. They get contaminated on the farm. So you've got to have um, if you're mixing with water, that water's got to be clean. You've got to have the ability to have your um, piping systems and your mixing systems clean. There's just a whole bunch of little steps that require a lot of QC or quality control. So the tea disinfectant is not going to solve the problems with magic. Oh, no, they don't. And that's the other thing to remember. It's really common for people to have, let's say the clinical case rate ticks up or the bulk tank cell count ticks up. And so they'll be like, oh, my teat dip's not working. I'm going to switch teat dips. And they'll switch teat dips. And then they're trying to figure out if that switch worked. Well, one thing that's really important to remember um, with teat dips is they only prevent mastitis. They don't cure mastitis. So if you're switching a teat dip, what you want to be monitoring is your new infection rate um, for cell count. So the animals that go from low to high cell count, so less than 200 to greater than 200, because that's what they're meant to prevent. They don't solve any existing problems. They just prevent new ones from developing. Yes. Prevention and maybe control a little bit, but not cure. Exactly. And, you know, things are misleading too. Like we're in kind of this moderate drought right now, right? And so it's dry on farms. So if you, you know, so when it's dry, we have less mastitis in general. It's harder for the bacteria to be transmitted. It's harder for them to grow. They, they require moisture. So typically cell counts are lower. Well, anything people are doing right now is going to seem like it's working. If it starts raining, then anything you're doing is going to feel like it's not working. So, <laughs> so we've got to also be thinking about how we evaluate the tea dips relative to what's going on in the environment that we live in. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Pam. I don't know, we were having so much fun. <laughs> we need to continue this conversation in maybe the next season of this podcast. Thanks, Thanks so, much. so much for having me. No, it was my pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. Thank you, Paul and Dr. Rook, for the great information in the episode today. If you want more information on this topic or schedule a direct consult regarding your farm, you can reach Paola at paolabs at msu.edu. That's P-A-O-L-A-B-S at msu.edu. You can also reach myself at C-A-R-R-A-S-Q1 at msu.edu. This season is almost over, but remember that all episodes are always available so please share with others that can benefit from this program. Next week, we will have the last episode of this third season, so I hope you'll join us then.